solve this yet again this discussion between God and Satan and yet God again was the one that brought Job up to Satan and then I find it interesting and I mentioned this the fact that Satan tried to get God himself to raise and God wouldn't do it but he allowed Satan to do it to me that speaks of compassion uh, even in a situation like that and uh, God certainly has a plan listen he's all-powerful he could keep us from suffering he could remove our suffering right now if he chose to. He could squash evil in the world, absolutely. Uh, but he's got a plan and purpose for all of it. And when we are in eternity looking back from his perspective, it, I believe it will make sense. I really do. And I don't think anybody's going to have a complaint against God. I don't think anybody's going to have any unanswered questions, and I think we're going to worship him just for who he is. Um, chapter 3, we see where Job's three friends... Uh, have come to him, and to their credit, they sit with him for seven days without even speaking a word. Uh, you know, they don't, they don't even recognize Job. He's that bad. He's got all, the, all these oozing sores. Um, certainly, I'm sure he probably hadn't been able to eat that much. Uh, all of his seven uh, sons and three daughters have died. Uh, he's lost many of his servants. He's lost his livestock. I mean, he, he's miserable. His wife wants him to curse God and die. They don't even recognize him. And at the end of seven days in chapter 3, Job breaks his silence. And last week, we looked at our response to trials. What should our response as a Christian be when it comes to our trials? And what was interesting is if you look at the end of chapter 1, you know, Job didn't curse God. He didn't question God. I mean, he literally fell down and worshiped and blessed the Lord and recognized his sovereign right to give and take anything that we have. But when you get to chapter 3, I mean, Job seems to be praising death. He is having a love interest in death. He said he seeks for death even more than hidden treasures. And you look at that and you say, well, how could that be the same man that fell down and worshiped and praised God in, in chapter 1? And I said, listen, that's just being real. Uh, we don't need to be so pious when it comes to our suffering and act like we got an S across our chest when we don't. And I love what Matthew Henry said. Job may have cursed his day, but he never cursed his God. And certainly he recognized it all. Even as I have seen, they that plow iniquity and sow wickedness reap the same. By the blast of God they perish, and by the breath of his nostrils are they consumed. The roaring of the lion and the voice of the fierce lion and the teeth of the young lions are broken. The old lion perisheth for lack of prey, and the stout lion's whelps are scattered abroad. Now a thing was secretly brought to me, and mine ear received a little thereof. In thoughts from the visions of the night, when deep sleep falleth on men, fear came upon me, and trembling, which made all my bones to shake. Then a spirit passed before my face, the hair of my flesh stood up. It stood still, but I could not discern the form thereof. An image was before mine eyes. There was silence, and I heard a voice saying, Shall mortal man be more than just God? Shall a man be more pure than his maker? Behold, he put no trust in his servants, and his angels he charged with folly. How much less in them that dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, which are crushed before the moth. They are destroyed from morning to evening. They perish forever without any regarding it. Doth not their excellency which is in them go away? They die even without wisdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. Thank you so much again, for this time together uh, with your people. I just pray that you would just empty me of sin and self and fill me your Holy Spirit. 
thank you for those that come and have come, and I just pray that you give them a special blessing. And uh, Father, we do pray for those that are suffering. God, help them. And uh, Lord, I just pray that you would be exalted and uh, we would leave here knowing you in a greater way. It's in Christ's name I pray these things. Amen. Amen. So I just want to reiterate, I think it's very important to understand the genre and background of a book. And we need to understand uh, that Job had to have lived during the time of the patriarchs, either right before Abraham or during his lifetime. Because in this whole theological conversation that we're going to see, he never mentions the law or Israel, and uh, he never mentions the Abrahamic covenant, but he does mention Adam, and he mentions the great flood. So he had to have been, it had to have been sometime uh, really between the Tower of Babel and Abraham, somewhere in there. So he didn't have the Old Testament scripture. He didn't, he didn't have as much to draw from as we do. And so we're going to see a theological conversation that lacks a lot of um, revelation from God. And so that's why, you know, this being a poetical book, when somebody asks me if I take the Bible literally, I say I take it as literally as it's meant to be taken in its context. And so, like, if you were just to, you know, peel Job chapter 4 away from its context and take the advice of Eliphaz at face value, you'd be in a mess because he says a lot of wrong things about God. And so it's important to understand that when we go through this, and when we understand that, then we can learn some things. You know, sometimes you learn from looking at what to do, and sometimes you learn from looking at what not to do, and that's going to be the case with Job's three friends for the most part. Now, not everything they say is wrong, but even the things they say right, they have a way of putting it in the wrong context. That's exactly what Eliphaz does in this text here. And so this, I cannot overemphasize verse 7 and 8 here. Because uh, verses 7 and 8 are going to be Eliphaz's thesis throughout the whole book of Job. Uh, you know, in college, they, they teach you to write. They want you to write a thesis where you state what you're going to say. The Whoever perished being innocent, or where were the righteous cut off? Even as I have seen, they that plow iniquity and sow wickedness reap the same. And so literally what he's saying to Job is this. You have done something in your life. You have sin in your life. And all of these things that have befallen you, the death of your children, your sickness, uh, everything that you're suffering right now is your fault. You did something wrong because if you were innocent, this would not happen to you. That's exactly what he's saying. Now, this is what is known as retribution theology. I mentioned that weeks ago in the introduction, and I said we would hear that term a lot, and that's what we're going to talk about tonight. Uh, if you want to give this message a title, it would be the dangers of retribution theology. Now, as I go through this and I talk about it, you're going to recognize it for what it is and nod and smile and probably agree, but the truth is we've all been guilty of this at some point in time. And so this is textbook retribution theology. I would say that retribution theology is probably very similar to the, the Hindu idea of karma. You know, what goes around comes around, and ultimately people get what they deserve. And if people got what they deserve, then everybody would be in hell and nobody would be in heaven, that's for sure. We wouldn't be here tonight with clothes on our back and shoes on our feet and uh, a vehicle to drive and a nice house with AC, thank you, Lord, and a refrigerator full of food. We sure wouldn't get that if everybody got what they deserved. 
But now certainly we could say there's a connection between what people sow and what they reap, but that's not an absolute. And Eliphaz takes this principle so far that he attributes all suffering to be directly linked to our behavior. That's such a dangerous way at looking at things. That's not a good theology. It's a poor philosophy is what it is. And by the way, this isn't unique to Eliphaz and his buddies here. Uh, He wasn't the only one to promote this. The Jews were notorious for doing this. Uh, You can see this all throughout the New Testament. I I thought about two examples just off the top of my head. But in John chapter 5, they're at the pool of Bethesda. Uh, you know, uh, at a certain season, the angel would come and stir the waters, and the first one in would be healed. And this, this crippled man, this paralytic, he had been there for 38 years. And Jesus comes in the sheep's gate there, and he says, you know, basically, what are you doing here? And he said, he said I have no man when the waters are stirred to put me in that I might be healed. 38 years, nobody helped that man get to healing. Why is that? Probably because they looked at him and said, well, whatever he did, he deserves it. I think about John chapter 9, even the disciples, uh, they saw this blind man and they said, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? And Jesus said, neither. Doesn't mean they were sinless. Obviously, nobody is. It just means they didn't do anything out of the way to deserve this, but that was their mindset. They must, somebody did something for this man to deserve this. Him or his parents, I don't know, but he deserves it. And so this is not uncommon at all. The Jews just... They're not, they're not very big on sympathy, and we don't need to be like that. I know some Baptists like that. Um, I've seen a lot of it in the church, and it's, it's just so unbiblical. It, listen, retribution theology hurts people. It, it actually hurts us. Uh, it hurts other people as well. So I've got four things I want to talk about briefly tonight. What are the dangers of retribution theology? Well, number one, it claims to speak for God, but it doesn't. You know, the mere fact, and and we can't lose sight of this, the mere fact that Job and his friends are talking about suffering in the context of God, they're in a theological conversation. And so in a very real sense, Eliphaz at least thinks he's speaking for God. He really does. Uh, You know, I believe that Eliphaz uh, really loved Job, and I think he probably thought he was giving him some good advice and that He thought he was speaking on behalf of God, but he was wrong on all those counts. And what made it even worse is that he went out of his way to try to prove that he was speaking for God. Look at this stuff that he says starting verse 12. He says, Now a thing was secretly brought to me, and mine ear received a little thereof. In thoughts from the visions of the night, when deep sleep falleth on men, fear came upon me and trembling, which made all my bones to shake. Then a spirit passed before my face, and the hair of my flesh stood up. It stood still, but I could not discern the form thereof. An image was before mine eyes. There was silence, and I heard a voice saying, Shall mortal man be more than just a god? Shall a man be more pure than his maker? Behold, he put no trust in his servants, and his angels he charged with folly. And so now he's telling Job, that he has some type of vision, some type of encounter with an angel or some type of spirit. I mean, who knows? But what he's doing is he's trying to add authority to what he's saying. And so you better be careful when people do that, Uh, especially if that authority is not in the pages of this book. You better be real careful about that. And so I've, I've had people do that before. And so 
You know, two major problems with what Eliphaz did here is number one, he was speaking apart from God's written revelation. Now, I realize they didn't have it, uh, but there's people today that do have it and they don't tend to care too much about that. Uh, but secondly, he was appealing to an, a subjective experience to equate it to objective truth. We, we can't do it. We'll be in a world. I mean, you open that can of worms, you'll never get them all back in. Um, but I would say if you are suffering, be very careful who you listen to. And even those with good intentions, supposedly speaking on behalf of God, can hurt you. And if you know those that are suffering, well, we need to get this. If you know those that are suffering, you better be really careful speaking on behalf of God. I tell you, we, we better really take that seriously. And uh, we better be really careful with the idea of God told me. I, I think we'd be much better off with, with God said. That, we'd be much better to do that. Um, I'm afraid that I've probably spoken on behalf of God in times where it wasn't God. I mean, Eliphaz, he has no idea. He, he hadn't read the first two chapters like we did. He hadn't seen the conversation between uh, Satan and God. And if he did, he'd have kept his mouth shut because virtually everything he just said was wrong. I don't care if he got it from a spirit or not. It wasn't the Holy Spirit, amen. And so he was just wrong. And so we better be more focused on what God said instead of God told me. That's all subjective. And, you know, honestly, I probably could not have even told you what retribution theology is until all this started with Leah's health about three years ago. And then I really became acquainted with it because I was confronted with it. I, at the time, I, I didn't have a term for it. I couldn't quite put my finger on it. But when I really began to study it, I said, wait a second, that's, that's what that is right there. Uh, in our own situation, we've had plenty of people come to us and try to speak for God. Uh, I mean, I could be here all night. I just thought of some things off the top of my head. We, I've mentioned this before. Uh, we've had plenty of people tell us I mean, we've had people, Leah's had people tell her to her face that she must have a sin in her life. You know, she just needs to repent, and this health condition goes away. And uh, once again, they're a modern-day Eliphaz. And, uh, you know, really, my thing is, if it was that simple, she'd done a long time ago. My goodness, who wants, to, who wants a migraine headache for three years? I mean, what sin is that great? I mean, really. And, and the problem is, uh, that their God, I, I like what Scott said the other day. He said, these folks, their God's so small, they could put him in their pocket and walk around with him. That's the problem. You see, it's, the, it's this mentality of, well, if you just do this, then God will do this. It's, it's a subtle way of controlling God. That if you just repent, then all this goes away and things just get better. I wish it was just that easy. <laughs> I really wish it was. And no doubt, listen, there's times in our life we do need to examine our hearts and lives. But God doesn't play peekaboo with that kind of stuff. You don't have to beat yourself up. He's going to let you know. And so, uh, but she's gotten that before. And, um, you know, we've had people tell us that if she would just take, I'm serious, if she would just take the Lord's Supper, she'd be healed. And I quote, the Lord's Supper is a meal that heals. We've gotten that before. Uh, you know, uh, we've been told, you know, just anoint it with oil and uh, probably the most Eliphaz-like thing that has happened in the past three years. Uh, you know, we broadcast the Sunday morning sermon on the FM radio there in Tuscaloosa every Sunday morning. And during that time, I would obviously, you know, especially when we, when we were in the heat of things, I would give the church an update, you know, every so often about how Leah was doing. 
And so some of that went out over the air. And one Sunday morning, this woman just showed up. I'd never seen her before. And at the end of the service, you know, she come up to me, and man, she was just making me, like, it was just weird. And she told me, I mean, got up, like, right up in my space, and, like, every time I take a step, you ever had a person, every time you take a step, they're like, you know. I had one guy that did that to me, and all I know is when the conversation started, I was at the front of the church. By the time we were done, we were at the back door. That's a true story. But this lady was like this, and she said, I heard about your wife on the radio, and God told me to get in my car, and I thought, oh, boy, here we go. She said, God told me to get in my car and come to the church this morning and lay my hands on your wife, and she would be healed. And uh, y'all know I didn't behave. Y'all know, y'all know I didn't behave. So obviously Leah wasn't at church. I mean, she's just too sick, and we live 45 minutes from the church. And I said, well, she's not here. And she's like, well, God told me to do this. And I said, let me ask you. I said, ma'am, can I ask you a question? I said, do you think the God of the universe knew my wife wasn't going to be here this morning? She said, probably so. And I said, why didn't he tell you? <laughs> so, I mean, yeah. So, yeah. Somebody speaking for God, they didn't know what they were talking about. And so we got to be careful about these things. Not only that we... Make sure we be careful who we listen to, but be, make sure we be careful what we say. You know, as a younger pastor, I used to think it was my responsibility to be able to fix everybody's problems, have all the answers, and sometimes I've just learned to say, I don't know. I love you, and I'm here, and I'll, you know, I'll, I'll hug your neck and cry on your shoulder, and I'll help you when I can, but I don't know. We don't always have to have the answers, and sometimes it's best that we understand that. Um, so we need to... We need to recognize retribution theology thinks it's speaking for God, but it's actually not. But then number two, um, retribution theology leaves absolutely no place for grace or empathy at all. Look at verse 5. It says, But now it has come upon thee, and thou feignest. It toucheth thee, and thou art troubled. It is, is it not thy fear, thy confidence, thy hope, and the uprightness of thy ways? Remember, I pray thee, whoever perished being innocent, or where were the righteous cut off? Even as I have seen that they plowed iniquity and sow wickedness and reap the same, by the blast of God they perish, and the breast of his nostrils are they consumed. Like, I can't even imagine being Job in this situation. After everything he's lost, after everything he's going through, and somebody finally takes the time to visit him and talk to him. And the very, I mean, by the time you get to verse 5, he is slamming Job and accusing him. He's heaping condemnation, unjust condemnation, on top of what he's already going through. And here's what we cannot miss. This really stuck out to me when I saw this. Um, but in verse 5, when he said, But now it is come upon thee, talking about his suffering and his trials. And he said, Thou feignest, it toucheth thee and thou art troubled he didn't say it touches me he didn't say i'm troubled he said it touches you and you're troubled you see the lack of empathy in that statement he, he's he's not touched by the suffering of job like he should be he wants to get to the nuts and bolts of what the problem is and so um it just retribution theology leaves no place for grace or empathy and, and think about it like this if everyone is reduced to getting what they deserve, then how could we possibly feel empathy or give grace to anyone? 
Retribution theology removes the responsibility to obey Galatians 6.1 and bear one another, another's burdens, fulfilling the law of Christ. And I would say, as I mentioned earlier, that we're all guilty of this to some degree, and we need to repent. I'm going to give you a scenario. I could do a bunch of them, but for the sake of time, I'll just do one. Scenario one, uh, a person gets terminal cancer who has never smoked or done any tobacco products in their life. That's a horrible situation. I mean, cancer's horrible. It doesn't matter who gets it or what the situation is. But scenario number two, a chain smoker of 35 years gets cancer. Do you feel more sorry for the first one than the second? Is there anything within your subconscious that says, well, they kind of deserved it. They had that one coming. I'm not, listen, I'm not here to deny cause and effect. I'm not, I'm not here to deny the concept of sowing and reaping. But should that affect our empathy and grace towards somebody in that situation? They're in a fight for their life. Their families had this huge burden heaped on them. I mean, why would we feel any differently about that? If we, if we feel more empathy for the first one than the second one, something's wrong with that. Something's wrong with that. Um, let me ask you this. Do our hearts break for people like the homeless or do we secretly feel that they are getting what they deserve? Once again, not here to deny cause and effect. There's a massive uh, majority of the homeless population that's there because they're slave to drugs. That's no secret. We understand that. Uh, but my goodness, that could, be, that could be us going for the grace of God. That, that could be our children. If you, listen, if you don't believe that, I don't know if you all realize this, and I don't think you would have a problem me saying this. Uh, but, you know, Pastor Molyneux, who went with us last time we did a homeless outreach in Salt Lake City, he told me, he said, while we're out here, I'm going to be looking for my former son-in-law because of what drugs had done to him. I mean, it could be anybody. And, and I'm, I'm telling you, if you want to mess up, you, you better say something out loud like, oh, that, I could never do that. My children would never do that. You, you let those words come out of your mouth and see what happens. I said... <laughs> I've done a lot of things I said I'd never do. And there's been some things that I said I would do that I've never been able to do. Uh, the Bible says, Boast not thyself of tomorrow, because thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. And so, do, but do we look at them? Now, there's certain ways to handle things. I get that. Listen, I'm just going to give you a little tip, and this may help you as far as homeless ministry goes. I learned a long time ago that most of the time it's not a good idea to give them cash because we know what they're going to do with it. But here's what I've learned to do. If they come to you and say, I need a place to stay, I'm going to do what I can to get them a place to stay. Hotel, you know, we've done it before, we'll do it again. If they need gas, I try to get them gas. If they need food, I get them food. And if they're telling the truth, they don't have a problem with that. And if they're not telling the truth, they're going to be agitated that you just won't give them the money. That's the way it works. It's a great filter. But my friend, we need to have compassion and sympathy and empathy for those people. And if you don't believe that, listen to what God said. Uh, Proverbs 17, verse 5, it says, Whoso mocketh the poor reproacheth his maker, and he that is glad at calamity shall not be unpunished. Wow. God says he's going to punish you for making fun of the poor. Wow. Um, but for the grace of God, like I said, that could be any of us. And before we get too high on a horse talking about living poor, I mean, I, I've been to some of the poorest places uh, in you know, Mexico and, and different places, even in the United States and abroad. And, and uh, you know, it's just a totally different situation. 
I mean, I've been in villages before with no running water, no utilities, no power. Uh, you know, families of five and six people living in a, like a 12 by 12 shack with dirt floors and sheets for windows and door. I mean, you know, and we could have been born in a place like that. My goodness, who's to say we couldn't have been? And so we just need to get off our high horse and realize that God's got no place for this stuff. Uh, showing grace and compassion to people doesn't make us a compromiser. Doesn't mean that we're enabling them or that we're uh, condoning their sin. It just means we're loving them and helping them. Doesn't make us complicit in the wrongdoing. Uh, and also, let me say this: it ought not bring us joy, even to see our enemies fall. God's got something to say about that too. Proverbs twenty-four and verse seventeen, it says, "Rejoice not when thine enemy falleth." And let not thine heart be glad when he stumbleth, lest the Lord see it and it displease him and he turn away his wrath from him. Even our enemies, we shouldn't get joy when they fall. Uh, retribution theology rejoices. Now listen to this. It rejoices to be able to say, I told you so. Mm -hmm. I told you so. I knew it would turn out like this. That's pride. But such should never be the attitude of a Christian. Retribution theology has no place for grace in it at all. People get what they deserve, period, end of story. It only adds affliction to the afflicted, and it only adds grief to the grieving. Do you think this helped Job at all? No, not at all. Not at all. It has no place for grace or empathy. But number three, two more quick ones and I'm done. Number three... Retribution theology gives us a wrong perspective of our own suffering. It'll come back to bite you. It really will. Um, now think about this. This is somewhat humorous to me. Uh, now that Eliphaz has come against Job and his suffering in the way that he has, imagine now if Eliphaz enters into a season of suffering in his own life. What do you think all of his peers are going to think? Oh, look at what Eliphaz did. Oh, he must have, hey boys, he's got some sin in his life. Look at all the suffering, boy, he must have messed up bad. I had a pre dear preacher friend of mine who told me, uh, he, he'd been pastoring for years and, and he would admit that he had said many things from the pulpit he shouldn't have said and most of it was his own prejudices and his own preferences. And years later, he had some of those very things he had slammed so hard happen in his own life and his own family and his church basically booted and he told me in some of the most humility that I've ever seen, he said, he said, Brother Brandon, he said, if you fill your people with gunpowder for year after year after year, don't be surprised if, surprised if one day they blow you up. That's true in life, isn't it? Whatever standard we used to judge, we're going to be judged by it. And the same thing would have been true for Eliphaz had he fell into, um, fell into suffering. Uh, everybody would automatically assume that he sinned, and Eliphaz couldn't have answered them a word. Imagine Eliphaz trying to defend himself. No, I'm really innocent, guys. No, I hadn't done anything. Sure. <laughs> See, he would have painted himself in a corner. We do the same thing. He said, who was ever innocent? Um, how does he word it here? He says, is not thy fear, thy confidence, thy hope, and the uprightness of thy ways? Remember, I pray thee, whoever perished being innocent. <laughs> Or where were the righteous cut off? Boy, he's really painting himself in a corner. And we better be careful because we'll do the same thing. See, retribution theology gives us a wrong perspective 
of our own suffering. That's true of the people around us. But it's also true of us because if he really believes this, what do you think is going to happen when he gets into suffering? You know what he's going to do? He is going to rake himself over the coals. Over, oh, what did I do? What did I do wrong? I must have done something wrong and it may not even be true. You see, retribution theology asks the wrong question when it comes to Christian suffering. Instead of asking what we're doing wrong, we should be asking what God is doing in this situation. You see, when it came to Job, it wasn't because of anything he did wrong. God spent the first two chapters establishing that fact. It wasn't because of what he did wrong, it was because of what he would do right. So we don't need to, we don't need to get hung up there. You know, it's bad enough to go through suffering and trials. It's bad enough to suffer, but then it's bad to suffer about the suffering. All this self-inflicted condemnation and guilt, that's not a Christian virtue. It'll steal your joy in the midst of everything you're going through. So retribution theology has a way of coming back on ourselves. But then lastly, and I'm done, number four, Retribution theology gives us a wrong measuring stick for how God feels about us. Now, I cannot overemphasize this. Um, And to me, at first glance, it almost seems like retribution theology would be total opposite of the spectrum as something like the prosperity gospel, right? I mean, it almost seems like it's real hard and conservative and, you know, a macho Christianity. And, of course, the, the prosperity gospel is way over here in its own category. But you would be surprised how closely related they are. Now, if we look at our circumstances in life to determine where we stand with God, we're bound for one of two things, either pride or despair. One of those two. And and just to give you an example of what I'm talking about, uh, if we use the circumstances in our life to determine how God really feels about us, uh, then let's talk about somebody like Joel Osteen. Joel Osteen, I think, is one of the biggest heretics walking the earth today. That man is a minister of Satan, and I have no problem saying so. You go Google him and see if you can find the man ever uttering the word repentance. He never talks about damnation or hell, never mentions the wrath of God, says that homosexuals are going to heaven even if they don't repent, Uh, says he thinks that other religions like Hindus are going to heaven that they love God and they're okay, that is, that is a false gospel. He has denied the Lord Christ. And yet, look at him. Man, that guy, had, they had to buy the old Houston Astros baseball stadium to be able to fit 30,000 people in every Sunday. It's mind-numbing. Every week, he goes out to millions across the world on radio and television. The man's got millions in book deals, like... Every day of Friday and your best life now and all this fluffy philosophy has got nothing to do with God or the, God or the Bible. And, uh, you know, he's got multiple homes, mansions. He drives luxury cars. He's got his own jets. And if you use that measuring stick that you really do get what you deserve, Joel Osteen is one of the godliest men on this planet. So is people like um, uh, Kenneth Copeland. You know, Kenneth Copeland, did you know this? He's worth over $750 million. $750 million. Well, God's just blessing him. Yeah, the little G God of this world is. And uh, so we can't do that. What about on the other hand? If we're using our circumstances to really see how God feels about us, what about the Apostle Paul? 
Go read the list that he gave. Beaten with rods, shipwrecked multiple times, stoned, left for dead, uh, imprisoned. And then at the end of his life, you know how he left this world? Nero took his head off. I heard somebody say the other day that if prosperity uh, lets us know how much God loves us, then God hated the Apostle Paul. Never been a truer statement made. And so you better be careful about measuring your circumstances and using that to see how God really feels about us. So we, we can easily look. If I look at our circumstances, and I'm sure Leah could say this on a much greater level than I am, we could say God hates us. <laughs> I mean, my goodness, uh, no real relief from suffering and all the things that have come with it. Uh, I tell you, if you, if you want to know how God feels about us, here's the only thing you ever need to think about. That Christ died for our sin according to the Scriptures and rose again the third day. That's all you've got to know. And so if you, you see how closely related retribution theology is, even to you know, certain concepts like the prosperity gospel, we, we've got to be careful about that. We, we better put our faith in the word of God and his promises and not everything going on around us. Because if we do, it'll be very destructive. Retribution theology is destructive and we need to run away from it as fast as we possibly can. Would you stand tonight as she comes? Order one second.